Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. I'm Em. You're listening to Verbal Diorama. We've had this conversation before. Two fingers behind your back. I've had the visions. I've seen the Omega. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. I'm Em. You're listening to Verbal Diorama. We've had this conversation before. Two fingers behind your back. I've had the visions. I've seen the Omega. This is episode 20, Edge of Tomorrow. Or if you have the DVD and Blu-ray, uh, Live, Die, Repeat. But we'll get into that later. Um, so it's been about a week and a half since um, Logan and... I've had such wonderful comments about Logan. People have really kind of rallied behind Logan and how wonderful it is. And especially how emotional I got during Logan. Um, I guess it is a movie that I just find really kind of hits me in the feels every single time. Um, and um, yeah, I got upset. And <laughs> um, It's not something that I like to do, but I... And it was something that I was going to re-record, but I kind of figured, nah, I'll keep it in because it's, I guess, more authentic that way. Moving on to a little bit of news. Now, I don't usually shout out podcast reviewers, um, even though I should, because anyone who takes the time to rate and review is an absolute superstar. And I, as I mentioned, always very much appreciate it. However, I have to mention specifically the reviewer Lord Gurak who wrote a five-star review for Verbal Diorama, and it's sheer hilarity. Whoever you are, Lord Gorak, I salute you. And I'm sorry you got attacked by a Sugar Babe CD, but I really need to know specifically which iteration of the Sugar Babes it was. For anyone who's not from Great Britain or doesn't know the Sugar Babes, they are a early 2000s girl band who've basically gone through like several lineups so much so that the original members of the Sugar Babes were basically not at the end of the Sugar Babes. So it is really important that we know specifically which 
sugar babes he's referring to. So Lord Gorak, I want you to let me know specifically which sugar babes it's important. If you haven't, go get yourself a copy of the latest issue of Film Stories magazine. It's issue 10 because I'm in it. (laughs) And if you have it, you know which podcast I featured. But I'm not going to tell you here because you should support independent magazines as much as you support independent podcasting. And all I'll say is they know who they are and I know they were incredibly chuffed to be featured. So please support Film Stories. And also, I recently found out that I'm number 18 in the UK Apple podcast chart for film history podcasts. And I'm not going to dwell on it or get all super emotional about it because trust me, right now, The water walks are pretty much constantly available. But it's just to say that I know those charts fluctuate and next week I'll probably be back down to like 153 or something. But I'm so grateful that I'm number 18. Um, Never expected to be anything. And if you saw me or knew me a couple of years ago, you'd wonder if I was the same person. Um, Because doing Verbal Diorama has changed my life. It's brought me so much joy and it's given me opportunities I never honestly thought possible. And if you're listening to this, which you are because you're listening, thank you. I'm Em. You're listening to Verbal Diorama. We've had this conversation before. There are two fingers behind your back. I've had the visions. I've seen the Omega. So maybe we should talk about Edge of Tomorrow? What I am about to tell you sounds crazy. And you have to listen to me. Your very lives depend on it. Can I help you, sir? What day is it? For you, Judgment Day. You just came in with the fresh recruits. Destiny call. Haven't you ever been one of these before? Maybe. My safety! How do I turn the safety off of my weapon? Come find me when you wake up. It's a new day, people. Who said you could talk to me? You did. Tomorrow. At the beach. We meet. You do know what's happening to me. We are fighting an organism. They have the power to reset the day. And now so do you. The new day, people! How do I control it? You have to die. Every day. I'm not even trained for combat. Again. Your leg's broken. No, I, I can still feel my toes. I think we better start over. Come on! I can't do this. I'm not a soldier. You're a weapon. Every time you die, you get smarter. And you're gonna make sure that we can win. This is as far as you ever make it. Why does it matter what happens to me? I wish I didn't know you. 
but I do. They know we're coming! They were waiting for us. It's because we've been here before. Where's your helmet? Maybe we win one. How many times have we been here? How many times? For me, it's been an eternity. Hey, Sash! The new guy! What's his name again? In 2020, an alien force known as the Mimics have invaded Earth. Humanity has fought the Mimics for five years. When the planetary war reaches a seeming standstill, the military raises a massive force for an all-out assault meant to drive the Mimics back for good. Major William Cage, an American PR officer, is roped into joining the first wave. The military strike fails in spectacular fashion, but Cage does manage to kill a strange Mimic during the assault. The blood that spews from the dying mimic dissolves Cage's body. He dies on the beach where the strike began and awakens the day before the strike. Cage is now trapped in a Groundhog Day loop of continuously repeating events. His only way out is with the help of Rita Vrataski, a war hero who helped the military achieve a massive victory over the mimics. Cage and Vrataski work together across numerous cycles of live, die, repeat to improve Cage's abilities as a soldier and figure out how his predicament can ultimately push back the invaders for good. Right, cast and characters of Edge of Tomorrow. We have Tom Cruise as Major William Cage, Emily Blunt as Sergeant Rita Vrataski, Bill Paxton as Master Sergeant Farrell and Brendan Gleeson as General Brigham. Uh, it was directed by Doug Lyman who also did Swingers. Um, he also did the cinematography for that movie as well. He did The Bourne Identity and one of my absolute favourites, Mr and Mrs Smith. Uh, it was written by Christopher McQuarrie, Jess Butterworth and John Henry Butterworth and it's loosely based on the light novel All You Need Is Kill by Hiroshi Sakurazaka and the manga by Ryosuke Takeuchi. There are differences between the originals and this movie, mostly the ending, but we can go into that in a bit. The score was by Christoph Beck, who also did the music for the first few seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which, as you know, one of my absolute favourite TV shows of all time. And um, put a pin in Buffy, because we're going to come back to that. Okay. In brief production history, I always say brief, but it's never brief. Nothing's ever brief with me. But, okay, production history. So, in 2009, Viz Media published the novel of All You Need Is Kill in America. The same year, Three Arts Entertainment purchased the rights to create a screenplay based on the light novel in conjunction with Viz Productions. And instead of pitching to major studios, the company developed what's called a spec script, which is essentially a non-commissioned screenplay, which is based on story rather than technical direction. 
It was at this point that Erwin Stoff, producer at Three Arts, approached Dante Harper, who wrote the complex initial first spec script of the novel, which Warner Brothers then bought for $3 million in April 2010, at that point the largest spec sale of the year. You'll notice that I didn't mention Dante Harper in the written by section, and that's because he was never credited for any of the work he did on Edge of Tomorrow. This was despite his script being listed in the 2010 edition of The Blacklist, which is Hollywood's most liked unproduced screenplays of the year. In May 2011, Doug Lyman was hired to direct the movie, and in June of the same year, Joby Harold was hired to rework the screenplay. It was Brad Pitt who was their first choice for the role of William Cage, but he turned it down. And then it was his co-star of Interview with the Vampire, Tom Cruise, who was then approached, and he signed on in December of 2011. Emily Blunt entered negotiations the following April. Six months before filming was due to start, Doug Lyman threw out two-thirds of Harper's original script and brought in brothers John Henry and Jez Butterworth to rewrite it. Simon Kinberg then replaced the brothers for more rewrites. And then eight weeks before filming started, Christopher McQuarrie, who directed Tom Cruise in Jack Reacher, replaced Kinberg. And it was McQuarrie who insisted on more of the movie's trademark humour and also the divisive ending, which we'll come to in a bit, probably at the end, because that's where endings need to be. The movie was filmed in the UK at Leaveston Studios in Hertfordshire, and the epic battle sequences, which were supposed to be reminiscent of the Normandy landings and the Battle of Dunkirk, were shot at Saunton Sands in Devon. Tom Cruise's opening scenes were filmed in Doug Lyman's editing suite, where the actor did his own hair and makeup. Trafalgar Square in London was closed for one day for filming there. So day one of filming was on the 1st of October 2012 and on the 2nd of October Doug Lyman wanted everything from the day before reshot because it turned out he was a bit of a perfectionist. The beach shoot took almost three months to complete and was originally only scheduled for two weeks and to evoke a World War II footage feel they used 35mm film instead of digital cameras. In addition, anyone who's been to the UK knows the weather here is um, interesting and can change day by day. The movie, being set over only one day, had to have identical looking weather in scenes, which meant the seven day a week filming schedule overran by 20 days to accommodate the changeable weather. I'm going to get my feelings out of the way now early because I love this movie. I love Emily Blunt. I think she's awesome. I'm going to talk about her actually quite a lot, but why I love her so much, um, because Rita is the centre point of why this movie works. She plays this highly decorated and respected soldier with ease and confidence. She knows better than everyone else because she's had to live with this power and lose it, as well as live with the death of loved ones. She becomes the propaganda poster girl for the war effort, isn't just the full metal bitch. She's nuanced and complex, but she also has this PR image to maintain. She can't show emotion or weakness because the resistance and the soldiers that she helped recruit depend on her for strength and guidance. Soldiers just like Cage. Rita is fully prepared to die for her country. So when Cage sees the legendary Angel of Verdun die on the battlefield he instantly realises that if she can die, then what hope does he have? So when he gets the power she once had, 
she sees an opportunity to win the war and she uses his knowledge to train him. He becomes better because of her. He works to get to her level. Rita inspires him in the same way she's inspired thousands of sign-ups to the war effort. He believes in her despite him having this special power and essentially being, in inverted commas, the chosen one, because he knows without Rita, he's doomed to just keep reliving this life. Rita's his inspiration. And it's really rare in modern Hollywood we see a male character aspire to be a female character. And not only that, have a female character so necessary in the story that if you remove her, the male character can't save the day. And vice versa. Because... That, ladies and gents, is teamwork. It's the pure and simple fact that this man and this woman are a team. They need each other. He's not just there to be the all-action hero, and she's not there to just be the love interest. The romance element can appear tacked on to make the film appeal to more people, but his love for her, I can 100% believe, mainly because it's Emily Blunt, but also he spent countless days with her, learning from her, working with her, and watching her die. And yet he never takes advantage of that fact. He never assumes that she loves him because she's only known him for one day. And even though he's known her longer, his love for her is so deep. And so when she kisses him, it's almost like she knows it's the end for them both as he no longer has the power. And she gives him that one final piece of solace that he can take. It's not a romantic kiss. It's more of this is the end for both of us kiss. But she knows how much it would mean to him. And also wholly improvised by Emily Blunt, who, did I mention, is outstanding in this movie. I do often think, as much as I enjoy Scarlett Johansson in the MCU, despite the dubious content she's given and her own real-life faux pas, what Emily Blunt could have done for Black Widow, I think she could have actually been really, really good. Um, and I kind of feel like this Emily Blunt kind of almost renaissance that she's having the fact that people are all of a sudden kind of standing up and taking note of Emily Blunt sort of following this and also Mary Poppins Returns, which I'll still argue is a good movie, but only really because of Emily Blunt and how fantastic she is as the character, because it is generally just a rehash of the original. But Emily Blunt is so good and also A Quiet Place, um, which was obviously directed by her husband, John Krasinski, and he co-starred with her and she's just great. In a Quiet Place. It's not the sort of movie that I normally watch, but I watched it for her and for John Krasinski because I love both of them. And oh, she's so good. I feel like we've got to this point, like all of a sudden, really quick. <laughs> and I kind of didn't intend to. But um, let's talk about Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise is arguably one of the most well known names in Hollywood. Whether you know him for Top Gun, Mission Impossible, for Couch Jumping, or slightly dubious religions you will know the name Tom Cruise his career spans almost 40 years but it's had its ups and downs and in the early 2010s he had a few misfires so night and day uh should have been great it wasn't then Ghost Protocol uh, which is my favorite Mission Impossible movie ever I love Ghost Protocol that followed Night and Day, and then he had Rock of Ages, and then Jack Reacher and Oblivion, two so-so movies. And after the lacklustre Oblivion, I didn't enjoy Oblivion really much at all. I don't even really remember Oblivion. He did Edge of Tomorrow, which is instantly memorable. 
and it's great Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise, for me personally, is at his best when he's not Tom Cruise. And I feel like I need to explain that. So Tom Cruise, handsome, all round nice guy that he is, does a lot of the same sort of movies. You know, he has a niche and I find his niche a little dull. I know that he can play sort of suave, charming, action hero. And I know he can run because he runs a lot and I get that. But the best Cruise is the against type Cruise. So, for example, Lestat, an interview with a vampire. Anne Rice apologised for her comments because she actually came out when he was announced to play Lestat and she was like, this is a terrible idea. He's going to be a really bad Lestat. She should know. She wrote the character. Um, But then after the movie came out, she apologised. And she said, basically, I saw Tom Cruise in the role and he was great. And he is really great in that movie. And similarly, Les Grossman in Tropic Thunder. He's really allowed to go completely OTT. He's wearing a fat suit. He has like really hairy arms and hairy chest. And he is, it looks really weird. And he's basically dancing and he is like gross. But he's the best thing in that whole movie, pretty much. There's a lot of his movies that I haven't seen. So I'm not going to turn around and say I'm a Tom Cruise aficionado. I'm not, I've not seen something like American Made. I've not seen Collateral. And those are two movies specifically where people rave about his performances. But I want to see more great Tom Cruise. I don't want more The Mummy 2017. Oh, crikey. I talked about that a little in The Mummy episode that I did because of how much I love The Mummy from 1999. It's so much better. Seriously, please don't see the Tom Cruise mummy. Please see the Brendan Fraser, Rachel Vice mummy instead. Um, and it's interesting because Edge of Tomorrow sounds like a very atypical Tom Cruise action movie. And in many ways, it kind of is. But the character of William Cage is such a, a smarmy PR coward. He's so intent to get out of the line of fire that he blackmails his general. It's so unlike the usual Tom Cruise hero. The fact that usually in a Tom Cruise movie, Tom Cruise, or the character that Tom Cruise is playing, knows what he has to do, like immediately. But William Cage knows nothing about war, knows nothing about fighting, and knows nothing about surviving this day. He's not trained. He has to learn. And I specifically love the humour in this movie. Every single time at the sort of the first quarter of this movie where Cage is dying over and over and over. It's hilariously funny. Tom Cruise has a really great sense of humour and I think that's really apparent in some of the roles that he plays. And his comic timing is so great. And it's clear from the trailer that Warner Brothers were banking on Tom Cruise's ability to helm an action blockbuster. He's very much the focal point of a trailer for a movie that's actually more than sort of the standard Tom Cruise action fodder. In fact, we rarely see Emily Blunt in the trailer. And this is another issue with how the movie was perceived because they really didn't know how to market it. It's an adaptation of material that's practically unknown in the West. So they couldn't market it under that banner. It's easy to look at trailers retrospectively, I think, and say, well, that's nothing like the finished product. But really, the only weapon they had was Tom Cruise. And the demographic, usually male, aged over 25, that he attracts. On release, it was pitched against Maleficent and The Fault in Our Stars. And The Fault in Our Stars actually beat Edge of Tomorrow on its opening weekend in America. And whilst Emily Blunt really, really is so fantastic in this movie, 
it is a Tom Cruise vehicle. And without him, the movie probably would have suffered more than it did. Um, and whilst it wasn't a massive box office flop, it really didn't do as well as it should have. It cost $178 million and it made $378 million worldwide. But only $100 million was in the US. And this was despite an overwhelmingly positive critical reception. It still sits at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and is widely considered to be one of the best original sci-fi movies of recent years. To put it in perspective, several weeks after Edge of Tomorrow came out, the fourth Transformers movie came out and it made $300 million just in its opening weekend. That's depressing. Edge of Tomorrow did, however, make more than John Wick, which came out several months later. <laughs> you didn't think I could get a Keanu reference in, but I did. Um, and these links get more and more tedious every single time I do them, but I'm not going to not do them. It's also worth mentioning that both Tom and Keanu are men in their 50s and both are doing their own stunts and are generally more fit than men half their age. For reference, Tom is two years older than Keanu and whilst they're of a similar age, they've never actually done a movie together. And I'll admit, I'd be down for a generic Tom Cruise action movie if it was him and Keanu. Make it happen, Tom. Sounds perfect. I'd only see it for Keanu, though. Tom Cruise just doesn't do it for me in the same way. I want to talk a little bit about the source material. Um, so All You Need Is Kill was released first as a light novel um, in 2004, and then a manga published between January and May 2014 in Weekly Young Jump magazine and Weekly Shonen Jump magazine in Japan. The stories are similar between the light novel and the manga and the movie with a few major differences. So firstly, the name and the ethnicity of the main character, Keiji Korea, to William Cage. Um, and obviously Cage, Keiji. In the manga the character of Keiji actually gets the nickname Killer Cage, um, which sounds quite similar to William Cage. So they've obviously tried to keep it in line. Um, so the other difference is, is Keiji signs up for duty with the UDF in the manga, whereas William Cage is a coward. Um, he's essentially forced into service. The age and nationality of Rita so Rita is originally an American teenager. So I don't think her age is ever specifically mentioned, but they it's basically around the age of maybe 19, 20, 21. Um, and she's American. And obviously Emily Blunt is British and slightly older than that sort of age range. Um, and Rita, incidentally, also dies in the source material. She dies at the end of the manga, whereas obviously in the movie she is there again and we're going to talk about that later um the setting is originally japan in the manga because obviously the manga came out in japan um and this time it's western europe so specifically the beaches of normandy and heathrow airport um the design of the mimics themselves in the novel are described as giant bloated frogs with four legs a tail and a hard endoskeleton and I still struggle to picture it. And I've not actually read the manga and I've not seen images. And maybe I should have actually seen an image before I started recording. But um, I really love the design in the movie. 
uh, with the tentacles and everything like that because I think the fluidity of the movement is is actually quite hypnotic um, and yeah I think that the design of the actual mimics in the movie is just so great especially the fact that they can bury underground and come up I, I mean it's the stuff of nightmares really to have something under your feet kind of come up and kill you but oh it's so good um going back to Scott Pilgrim uh which is strange but stay with me here so Scott Pilgrim I mentioned is probably the best video game movie that's not based on a video game and I kind of feel like Edge of Tomorrow gives it a bit of a run for its money because the way Edge of Tomorrow is shot, especially at the start when Cage is on the battlefield for the first time, it's shot as if it were a first-person shooter. And you kind of have this like haphazard firing of this gun, um, which is very much actually the way that I play first-person shooters. This is why I don't play first-person shooters because I'm terrible at it. Um, and also the way that mimics are hierarchical. So almost like when you have like a generic soldier, when you have a level boss and then when you have a, like the complete game boss and obviously the ability to reset to a specific point, as in like a save game. In many ways, the sheer tenacity and determination of Cage in Edge of Tomorrow is admirable because talking of the reset point, the saved game, he relives this event so many times, just like playing a video game, learning something new and each time because in his world this is real life he has to see people die and each time he has to see Rita die it has to mentally affect a person it's not something that we see that much of only that he kind of becomes less cowardly more battle-hardened as the movie progresses um and to be honest that's probably what made the full metal bitch the full metal bitch in the first place um because as I mentioned for me, Rita is really the heart and soul of this movie. And Emily Blunt can really sell this kind of battle-hardened soldier just as much as she can sell the vulnerable side of Rita that she ultimately shows to him. And additionally, the stubborn, you know, I'm going to go to the helicopter anyway, even though you've told me I'll die. And I get that a lot of people were frustrated with that side of Rita that she just she would believe Cage up to a point and then she would kind of go against what he said. But that's the soldier in her. You know, she kind of ha always has to keep trying and she always has to believe that there's another way. Rita is every bit the equal of Cage and in many ways, she's more. You know, she trains him, she teaches him. Every time they relive the day, he finds her and they train. And without Rita and her knowledge of the time loop specifically, humanity would be doomed. Before Rita realises Cage has the power, she takes his ammo as he dies. And she has no qualms about it. <laughs> She's just like, dude, you're dying, I'm taking your stuff. As you would, if you were playing a first-person shooter game, if someone's down, you will take their ammo. After she realises that Cage has the power, she tells him to find her when he wakes up because she knows what she needs to do to win the war is to keep the power on their side. Additionally... Her knowledge of the resets is the main reason why she uses a melee weapon, which is actually helicopter blades, which I find so fascinating, especially with the helicopter at the end. But she uses that instead of guns because she's learned that guns run out of ammo. And what's the point of fighting these creatures if you've got nothing to fight them with? When Cage meets Rita for the first time, she's doing a yoga move. And I need to mention it because it's called a planche. And I've studied yoga sort of on and off for almost 20 years. And let me tell you, <laughs> I can't do that. 
Oh my God. Another reason why I love her so much. So a move like that takes so much core strength, shoulder strength, back strength, arm strength, wrist strength. Good God. Have I mentioned Emily Blunt is awesome. And she can genuinely do that in real life. Um, I struggle with crow pose. Oh God, I'm so embarrassed. I've been doing yoga for so long and I still can't do a good crow pose. Um, Obviously, she trained extensively. She and Tom Cruise trained extensively. And the actual battle suits, so the exoskeleton suits, on average, they weighed 85 pounds and they were specially made and fitted for both. And obviously walking in these suits had to be practiced and perfected. And of course, Emily Blunt had to look like she'd been wearing the suits forever. And Tom Cruise had to look like he was learning. So, you know, there had to be sort of a performance element in how they actually walked in these suits. And just to add to the general awesomeness of the Emily Blunt episode of the podcast, she found out after the initial filming was complete that she was pregnant with her first child. And then she got the call to say she had to go back for reshoots. And whilst before she was pregnant, she was happy to do stunts. Naturally, now that she was pregnant, she didn't want to. And Tom Cruise actually noticed that she was hesitant to do stunts. And so she actually confided in him that she was pregnant. Um, And he was the only other person who knew other than her own husband, John Krasinski. So not only is she a total badass in this movie in general, for some of these scenes, she was pregnant. I mean, if you're not signing up to the Emily Blunt fan club yet, I don't know what it will take. She's amazing. Oh, I love her so much. I mentioned before about the title of the movie. So the movie, when it came out, was called Edge of Tomorrow. Now, it's very important to have a good title for your movie. Uh, A title that's maybe descriptive, that rolls off the tongue, that's something to do with your movie and that, most importantly, audiences are going to actually engage with. So the movie was originally going to be called All You Need Is Kill after the light novel and the manga. But apparently having kill in your title is bad. So Doug Lyman basically said, I want the movie to be called Live, Die, Repeat. But executives at Warner Brothers preferred Edge of Tomorrow. And so when the movie did poorly at the US box office, the name was primarily blamed. And let's be honest, it is a rubbish nondescript name, but I don't think you can completely fully blame the name for the issue. Um, But when it came out on DVD and Blu-ray, the movie was essentially rebranded as Live, Die, Repeat, Semicolon, Edge of Tomorrow. Um, A bit of vindication there for Doug Lyman, but it's ever so confusing to have a movie that's essentially got two titles um, and the Live, Die, Repeat is now pretty prominently used. Um, It's even used on Rotten Tomatoes. If you search for Edge of Tomorrow, the actual page that comes up is called Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow. So it's generally kind of known that the movie is kind of known as both now. I want to talk about the ending of the movie because we're kind of almost at the end of the podcast now. The end of the movie essentially has Cage kill the Omega and the Omega's blood seeps into him underwater and he awakens again, this time on the helicopter before he's even met with the general. 
the mimics are defeated and he gets to meet Rita, who's as brash as ever. He grins and then we get Love Me Again by John Newman, which is a very strange choice for the end credits for this movie. But anyway, so the official line from Doug Lyman was after all of that, they wanted an ending that was ambiguous, but that satisfied the audience and was an actual ending. But I think it's safe to say that fans of the movie are divided on whether or not it works with the rest of the movie tonally and the logic of it. So to address that, firstly, it's sci-fi. So I'd argue it works on its own logic because that's the point of sci-fi. But even taking that out, with the original ending of the novel and manga being Rita's death, there's no way that would have worked for a Hollywood ending. I believe he reached the point where he was in love with her because why would you not love Emily freaking Blunt? And seeing her die over and over and over... And you kind of reach a point where, you know, Christ, that man deserves a happy ending. Um, The way I understand the ending, specifically Cage's return to the helicopter rather than the previous reset point, is we're talking about a different timeline. So the first time he was infected, for lack of a better description, was with the Alpha's blood. So that reset him to the specific point of the Alpha's reset point, which was at Heathrow. So the Alpha is on a separate timeline to the Omega who controls the ability to reset time at all. So when Cage is infected by the Omega's blood, it's then a new timeline within the Omega's de facto reset point, which is before the Alpha's. And this is why he wakes up at a different point in the day. And the reason there are no mimics in this timeline is, well, the Omega controls the timeline and the Omega no longer exists in any timeline. So the mimics are all dead. And I think like most sci-fi, you kind of take from it what you can or what you want to. And that's my interpretation of a very open-ended story. And I've got workings out, (laughs) genuinely. I've got a little diagram that I use to actually try and figure it out in my own head. And if you want to see my diagram, ask me on Twitter. I'll send you it. It's very simple. It's basically just three circles, essentially each working as clocks and... So you have the outer circle, which is the Omega, and that has is on one time, and then the Alpha circle in the middle, and then Cage. And so basically Cage takes on whichever timeline that he's essentially working with at that particular point. Um, and it makes sense in my head. It took me a while to actually understand it myself, but now I kind of think I've got it. It kind of makes sense to me. Um, sequel. So... A sequel to a great standalone sci-fi movie is never necessary. And I'd always argue that Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat slash whatever you want to call it does not need a sequel. It never has. It never will. But a sequel titled Live, Die, Repeat and Repeat has been announced. And Cruz and Blunt are set to reprise their roles in a sequel that's also a prequel, which is Doug Lyman's words, not mine. But since both Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt are exceptionally busy and unavailable. The project is on hold until their diaries can be aligned. However, it should totally be called Edge of Yesterday. Just a suggestion, that's a verbal diorama trademark. If it's called Edge of Yesterday, that's down to me. I always like to get social media thoughts and I got quite a few for Edge of Tomorrow because people love Edge of Tomorrow and quite rightly because it's fantastic. Um... So over on Twitter, Andy at Geek Salad Radio just simply said, from the director of Swingers, that's all caps, with one, two, three, four, five exclamation marks. I have seen Swingers. Swingers was one of those movies that I was basically led to believe was probably one of the greatest 
films of all time. And I didn't enjoy Swingers. So I guess I'm a terrible person. <laughs> but I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I didn't think it was all that great. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but yeah, same guy who did Swingers. Um, at Cap Understands. Movie was much better than I anticipated. Great concept. Hampered by a less than stellar ending, which had too much resolution. All ran great performances for both Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt as well. At Robin Hood Pod said, This took me completely by surprise. I went in with very low expectations. Absolutely loved this film. I've loved Emily Blunt in everything she's done and I loved seeing her as a total badass in this. One of the better Tom Cruise roles too. More character than usual. At Nerds with Friend said, Great sci-fi flick. The only downside were the squiggly aliens. Just felt like a lazy design. As I've said, I love the designs of the mimics. I think I think they're beautiful. I think they're strangely beautiful. A bit like when petrol is in water and it's kind of got that really weird coloured sheen and it's like strangely beautiful. That, that's it. <laughs> that's what I want to use to compare to mimics. Petrol in water. Please don't put petrol in water. It's really bad. At Cooking with Grief said, Really enjoyed it. Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise were great. And a bit of Bill Paxton never goes missed either. And shame for me for not mentioning Bill Paxton. Obviously, Bill Paxton passed away a couple of years ago. And he's a bit of a legend. Um, obviously, Twister, Aliens, Titanic. I mean, what a guy. Yeah, and sorely missed. So, yeah, Bill Paxton is really great. Um, he's not in it all that much, but what we see is really great. At Dream of Dragons said, Not going to lie, I only watched it for Emily Blunt being an absolute badass in a futuristic post-apocalyptic world. Oh, and seeing Tom Cruise in one of two roles I actually enjoy watching him in. It's satisfying seeing Cruise get his ass kicked over and over till he learns. It's a really clever, if a little cliche sci-fi film. It's a lot of fun and best parts are the invasion and training parts. At Trevor Carley said, I really love this film. It oozes charm and was surprisingly super funny. It also does a great job portraying a real-life video game. Where video game-based movies fail, this one succeeds by not following a video game story and instead following a video game narrative structure. Absolutely, 100%. At Kevin the Critic simply said, I loved it. At 30 Podcast said, I'm such a time travel junkie, so I really enjoyed this one. This movie would have done so much better at the box office if the marketing folks, or whoever was in charge of changing the title, etc., didn't screw it over, I think. Yep. At JohnBoy274 said, Brilliant. I loved it. And over on Instagram, at Shuffle Online said, One of the most underrated films this decade, most likely due to Tom Cruise hate, but this film is one of the best sci-fi action movies. At Fueled Funny said, Brilliant soundtrack, interesting story, a bit video game in places, but Cruise puts 110% into it and Emily Blunt is fantastic. 8.5 out of 10. Which I think is a fair score, but I'd probably go a bit higher, to be honest. At TFGIF Podcast, I finally saw this a couple of months ago and I liked it, but I think I missed some things and will probably need to do a rewatch. And... I do think this is a movie that does actually get better and better on rewatch um, because I think you can pick up little things that you didn't quite get before. Narratively, it is fairly simple in the sense that 
he's just kind of repeating time over and over again and I think it's one of those where if you read too much into it it's kind of unnecessary um but I think it definitely does better on rewatch I've seen this movie about maybe six or seven times and each time I love it more and more so definitely do a rewatch at Movies at the Mat said it's the comedic moments that had it stand out for me and separate it from other sci-fi action movies they really play and have fun with the idea of dying not being permanent so that when Cruz's character loses the ability to loop back, it then ups the intensity of the final battle. This movie also made me realise I will gladly watch Emily Blunt in anything. And finally, at Vegimorph said, A very fun and rather underrated sci-fi action film, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt have great chemistry, absolutely love her as Ratasky, and it'll be fun to see where they take these characters in the sequel. I also love the old World War II sort of visuals that the cinematography provokes and adds to the war atmosphere. While the story does have echoes of Groundhog Day, it does things in a uniquely fresh and sometimes funny way that keeps you engaged, while also having some great subtle character development for the cruise character. Some of the logic of the day repeating might be distracting if you think about it too much, but everything else is so well done, it's easy to overlook. Also, R.I.P. Bill Paxton. You, American? No, sir, I am from Kentucky. Right. I think we've come to the end. And... As always, there's so much that I didn't mention. I didn't mention the cinematography. I didn't mention the visual <laughs> the visual effects. <laughs> oh my God, there's so much that I didn't mention. It's such a great, fun, funny, interesting, wonderful, amazing movie. And it's really not, I think, given the credit that it deserves, I think a lot of people wrote it off because of the Tom Cruise kind of standard action fodder thing. It's so much more than a Tom Cruise movie. It's an Emily Blunt movie. And you should see it for her, if you haven't. And if you haven't, why are you listening? Just, you should know by now that I fully spoil everything. But seriously, it's a great Emily Blunt movie. (laughs) Go see it. Thank you for listening. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Edge of Tomorrow or indeed Live, Die, Repeat, whichever. Up next is episode 21 and it's a total change of pace for me. Um, It's almost Halloween, um, so I'm going to look at the complete opposite of a scary movie. I'm going to go and have a look at a delightful piece of comedy joy. We're going to Harvard Law School, guys. What? Like it's hard? Um, Legally Blonde. Um... I haven't really covered any comedies on Verbal Diorama. Nothing that's kind of an out-and-out comedy, like I think Legally Blonde is. And this is one of the best. I adore Elle Woods completely. It's endlessly rewatchable. I'm so excited to discuss Legally Blonde. If you like this episode, I've also done episodes on... Here we go. Titan AE, Captain Marvel, Dread, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Pleasantville, The Cabin in the Woods, Speed, Aladdin 1992-2019, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, X-Men Dark Phoenix, Charlie's Angels 2000, The Mummy 1999, The Matrix, John Carter, Willow, The Iron Giant, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World and Logan. And they can all be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. You can email me general hellos, feedback or suggestions, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. My website is verbaldiorama.com. 
if you like what I do and you want to leave me a great review, just like Lord Gurak, the absolute legend, you can do so on Apple Podcasts and I'd really appreciate it. And I have a column over at Film Stories magazine, which is an independent British movie magazine. Uh, obviously, I'd love it if you could support it and the wonderful people who work on it by popping over to filmstories.co.uk slash magazine. Um, there's a link there where you can purchase one-off copies of the back catalogue or you can subscribe. That's it for me. I'm Em. You're listening to Verbal Diorama. We've had this conversation before. You have two fingers behind your back. I've had the visions. I've seen the Omega and I'm getting a really weird sense of deja vu. Bye. Movie